Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. Thank you for joining us. Today, my guest is Tim Pebworth. Tim and I have known each other going on several decades. I've known his family, I know his children, I know his mother. Tim is a person who is very involved with the French work. Tim serves as pastor for United Church of God congregations in France, as well as senior pastor for French-speaking areas in West Africa and advisor to church leaders in French-speaking countries around the world. Along with his wife, Maurice, he directs the development of print and web media for the United Church of God in the French language, including the bi-monthly French edition of the Beyond Today magazine. And currently, he is in the Ivory Coast, or how it's pronounced, Cote d'Ivory, which I am sure that I have not said properly. Tim, <laughs> Tim's wife, Maurice, grew up in Paris, and they met in California when she came to the United States for university. And since that time, this is very interesting, Tim has become a naturalized French citizen, and Maurice, a naturalized American citizen, and they split their time between Seattle, where they currently live, live in the U.S., and Bordeaux, with Tim traveling regularly to West Africa. He has an extended family, very involved in the work of God. And also an interesting point that Tim's daughter, Sophie, attended Ambassador Bible College when I was teaching a class in general epistles. And I really enjoyed her inquisitive mind and questions for the class that I taught. She was always there with questions that sometimes I could not fully answer, but that was the way Sophie's style was. Very good, and I enjoyed being able to look up answers when she asked questions. So welcome to The Cubic Report, Tim. Yeah, great. It's, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm glad it worked out that even though I was traveling here in West Africa and I'm in Abidjan in uh, what's called Côte d'Ivoire. I know it sounds really kind of strange there, but yeah, Ivory Coast in French. Uh, I'm glad, glad to be here. Well, I'm so glad that we're able to finally make this because we've been wanting to do this podcast now for, as I mentioned, uh, since January of this year. And right. I have visited with you at your home when you lived in Silicon Valley. What was the name of the town that you lived mm -hmm. in there? We lived in Santa Clara, Santa. At the, basically at the bottom of, bottom of the San Francisco Bay there. Right. And uh, we just, my wife and I enjoyed a very, very special several days staying with the Pebworths and, and finding out more about the work that he's doing in the French-speaking areas. But we would like to know, I think that a lot of people who hear your name would like to know, what is your role and the scope of your work and, and where you do work. Because right now, as you mentioned, as I spoke in the introduction, you are spending your time between Seattle, which is your U.S. domicile, and Bordeaux, France. So maybe you can explain that, Tim. Sure. Yeah. It's been about six years now since I transitioned from my role as a chief financial officer in Silicon Valley to being a pastor. So that's quite a transition, CPA to pastor that way. And uh, but, uh, you know, Maurice and I actually started using our vacation time to work with members in France nearly 12 years ago. So it's kind of just been a, a progression of things. And uh, right now, as you mentioned, uh, responsible for spreading this wonderful message of uh, the role of Jesus Christ in our life and the hope for the kingdom of God through the French speaking world and the Francophone areas, as is often we refer to it, uh, pastoring for two churches, one in Bordeaux, obviously Bordeaux famous for its wine. And also where we have our church office and another one in Narbonne, 
which sits about five hours to the southeast on the Mediterranean Sea. Mm-hmm. And I also uh, pastor uh, for scattered members uh, throughout France. And I'll mention we have a we have a weekly Sabbath service that we broadcast from Bordeaux via Zoom uh, every Sabbath at 3 p.m. Central European time, which is 9 a.m. on the East Coast in the United States. So any of your listeners who'd like to join us uh, for services in French, we we welcome them. We we have visitors every week, uh, both prospective members of the Church of God and also um, people who uh, are you know members of of the United Church of God. We've got people in the, as far away as the island of Réunion in the Indian Ocean and uh, Quebec and Europe and so forth. Would like if you could send me the contact information of where people can connect to the services, and we'll include that with the notes with this podcast. People are very, very oh. cu- very, very curious and would like to know. Obviously, French is one of the major languages in the world, and we're very grateful that we have continuously had, in the Church of God, a French-speaking division uh, and people who have known the language. The problem is, is that uh, not many people in the United States, including myself, know the French language. So it has to be that <laughs> right. particular group that speaks French and they kind of knowingly communicate with one another. But you may want to tell us about the extent of the French work, how it has followed the French empire, so to speak, because a lot of where your work is done in Africa. In fact, I think the bulk of your work and the membership is in Africa. So let's hear about the scope of the French-speaking areas, because France has, you know, obviously the the, the headquarters, so to speak, of the French, but right. even then, you know, Paris is not the chief principal city, but Bordeaux is, uh, more of the yep. hi- recent history of the church, the families, and the people. But uh, give, us a, give us a tour. Yeah, well, you know, uh, just like uh, the British have the Commonwealth, and we often hear about this, uh, so France has something called uh, la francophonie or the francophonie, which um, is uh, an organization of um, of countries uh, around the world uh, who either have French as their first language or as a important second language or have a connection to France uh, historically uh, that is important uh, that they want to be part of it. For example, Ukraine is an observer in the Francophonie because mm. of historical connections between Ukraine and France. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, today there are different estimates. Uh, one estimate puts the number of French speakers at about 320 million people uh, in about 32 countries where it's either the first or second language. Most of those people, as you said, live in Africa. Um, I often tell people, you know, London is, you could say, the birthplace of English and yet you know, New York is the largest English-speaking city in the world. Likewise, Paris, birthplace of French, but it's not the largest French-speaking city in the world. That would be Kinshasa and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, there's only one city in France that meets, uh, that is on the list of the top 20 largest French-speaking cities in the world. I'm here in Abidjan, which is the third largest uh, city. So, so yeah, it, it sort of stretches around the world. And uh, the work that I do and support for the church uh, follows that. So uh, I, I'm the senior pastor directly for uh, three countries in West Africa, Benin and Togo, which are two very small countries which sit just west of Nigeria, and also uh, this Ivory Coast or Cote d'Ivoire, which uh, 
changed its name to follow the French back in the 80s. But it sits a little west of Ghana and borders uh, Mali, Liberia, and uh, I would say Guinea or um, uh, Guinea. Yeah, I think we call it uh, Guinea. Uh, anyway, I might I might not have pronounced that correctly. Uh, it's an English. Uh, it's a, it's another country uh, close to there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the so Ivory Coast um, is uh, is where I am now, and uh, working with uh, two congregations here, and we're doing some great work. I can talk about uh, LifeNet has been helpful uh, to some uh, to the congregation in the north. We can talk about that, but mm-hmm. just to kind of continue the tour uh, in Central Africa, I work with a regional pastor who lives in Cameroon, and I've visited many cities in Cameroon, including in the far far north, right. Right as the Sahara begins, uh, you know, you go up there, you see camels. Uh, church mm. starts at 8 a.m. because it's so incredibly hot. You're right on the border with Chad, mm-hmm. uh, really kind of getting into the Sahara. Uh, and then also uh, a very interesting country, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Yeah. Uh, and and then finally now we I've just uh, begun to visit Madagascar, uh, mm-hmm. where we have a, a great deal of interest uh, in the church Uh Work with Chuck Smith and Joseph Jean, and uh, who's the deacon serving in Haiti. Work with Quebec uh, and Canada. Uh, so it's it's really all around the world. You really have an, an, an amazing network, even even more, I would say, interesting. And it's an area that we know very little about, and it's just huge. It's like a huge wave, you know, over us, but we don't understand very much about it. And we hear about people going there and activities taking place. And when I was uh, senior pastor over Zambia, one area that we worked in a lot. In fact, one of our more productive areas is a four-church string between Kitwe or Mufalira and Meninga uh, to the far west. And uh, those cities were literally a mile or two from the border of the Congo, the DRC, the Democratic Republic right. of the Congo. In fact, we had people come over from the DRC, and one of our churches really was uh, uh, very much a part of, of of members or people that had come from them. So we've had that contact, and yet, as close as it was, and on the main highway as we drove, we could see the hills of, of the Congo. It, it was a whole... Uh, galaxy away <laughs> because of politics, and, and I've and, and I've and I've driven on the other side of that border, and I've looked across, and again, it does feel like another galaxy away. Mm-hmm. We had people who uh, attended our services, and we were tempted at one point. You know, I think that uh, uh, what's that huge city there, uh, Lumumbashi? There's that's right. We have we have a we have a lot of people on Lumumbashi, but then there's a uh, Kasulambesa. Yes. which is the city that's right there on the border where we also have members and they go across to Kitway. Uh-huh. And really Zambia is a, it's almost, it's almost uh, comparable, let's say to the United States, Mexico border, where you have a lot of opportunities in the United States and people, you know, they want to cross the border for opportunities. It's, it's the same way people in the Congo want to cross the border into Zambia so they can get work. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's that kind of dramatic sort of, uh, level of economic uh, opportunity, you know, wealth and poverty. Well, I, one thing that really struck me, though, was is that while it was wealth and poverty in the DRC, what they were sitting on with all the copper mining was just huge wealth that was mined there on both sides, on the Zambia side and also on 
the uh, Congo side. And yet the people did not benefit from that. In fact, the areas in, the, in Zambia where the copper is mined, the roads are all beat up, the trucks that haul the copper, uh, you know, the, mel the smelted copper, you know, just beat the heck out of the roads there. And the people are, are just as poor. And so it was uh, it's just very sad to see an area like that. And maybe you could even comment on that uh, as we continue the tour. So don't let me up hold up the tour here. No, no. Well, I mean, I and I, I would just say that uh, this is this is really just shows the, you know, the level of corruption and also really just it moves you to pray thy kingdom come because uh, as you drive from Lumumbashi south towards the Zambian border, and you, what you do as you get closer to the border is the the um, semi tractor trailer, the, what we say in the in the United States, eighteen wheelers mm -hmm. are 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 stopped in a line miles and miles and miles. And I've shown this video to um, to people in France where you just drive miles and miles of, of nothing but eighteen wheelers lined up with cobalt and timber and all sorts of minerals and they're all on their way through zambia down to south africa and then out onto the ocean to be shipped to china and the united states and and it's like the wealth of the nation is just being drained right from underneath them to be sent out and all that wealth is accumulating to those who are at the sort of the highest echelons of government within the democratic republic of the congo one of the richest countries in the world in terms of mineral resources and yet uh, typically ranks in you know, sort of the top 10 poorest and most dangerous places in the world. It's, it's just heartbreaking. We were even told that if we come to visit, <laughs> and, I, and I, very unlikely that I ever will, is that, um, that it was best to cross the border, not at the official border crossings, but at other crossings, <laughs> because they were a lot easier to cross. So anyway, that's the kind of thing that... Uh, you know, we have experienced with the DRC. And some of the greatest genocide ever in the world occurred a little over 100 years ago in the DRC. It was part of yeah, the Belgian, that's right. it was called the Belgian Congo. And the rulers in in uh, Belgium really just raped the country. Uh, they really did, and they just worked the people to death. And millions of people died, millions of people died. And uh, right now what's there is, is better, big quotes, but it's a country that has a very, very rough start. And we have uh, members who are in Kinshasa, which is the capital city, and then it's an enormous country. If you put it, if you put Kinshasa, let's say in San Francisco, uh, Lumbambashi would be in Minnesota. That gives you kind of an mm -hmm. idea of the size of the country. And, and yet it's a country that's pretty much without any infrastructure, uh, limited roads. And um, I, I tried to get, I tried to go there once in 2018 and, uh, uh, they told me my visa was, uh, was not valid. I was detained by the police and you can imagine being detained in a country like that by the police. And I was put right back on the plane and sent back to France. It was, uh, um, a little, a little frightening at times, uh, but finally was able to get into the country, uh, just before the pandemic mm -hmm. and to, to just see the. Um, as you as you described, the legacy of that kind of corruption, that legacy of that kind of abuse uh, in in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, they use the U.S. dollar, which, you know, literally you go to the bank and there's an ATM that has U.S. dollars and an ATM that has Congolese francs. But the Congolese franc is used for only really small things. If you want to do anything, you have to use dollars. And so 
uh, you know, you can easily spend uh, 20, $50 a day, even sometimes a hundred dollars a day in, in bribes. You go to the airport, you want to park in the parking lot. Uh, the person says, what are you going to do for me? And so you have to bribe the parking attendant to park your car in the airport. You get to the terminal and it's like a mafia where you can't check yourself in. You have to pay $20 and he takes your passport, takes your bags, and he goes to the counter and checks you in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's pretty, also pretty un- unsettling when you give your passport to a complete stranger. But that's the only way it works. And, and basically, uh, they don't consider them bribes. They're just sort of service fees that you're paying as you're moving through the country. It's protection. They, I know that in Zimbabwe, the same kind of thing was uh, extent where they would say, uh, we would like to protect your car. Now, if you didn't ask for that protection, the damage would come for the person who was offering protection. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Exactly right. But anyway, that's... Uh, I know that uh, the the Congo is is huge, placed over Europe. Uh, I had a map of uh, the Congo on my website. In fact, I might uh, uh, post a few of the, I might mention a few of the postings that we had there about our work in the Congo. One of them, uh, I featured a map of the Congo overlaid Europe, and it really covered from Norway on down to Spain. It was just it was just massive. That's right. And, and as I said, a country without really any infrastructure, you know, basic roads, uh, even the, the internal airlines are not certified according to Western standards. And so you're advised to avoid uh, flying internally uh, because, you know, we have worldwide standards in terms of maintenance of aircraft and security of airports. And, and uh, it's just a country that just doesn't, uh, isn't able to uh, attain any sort of basic standard. Now, Africa I think when we stayed with you, Tim, you mentioned that there's actually, is it true, more French in Africa than English, or is or am I wrong? Well, yeah, there it's uh, it's definitely up there. And again, getting good information about all this stuff can be a little challenging. But you essentially have Swahili, uh, French, and English as sort of the sort of the the top three kinds of languages. And there's some debate as to whether French is more widely spoken than English. Uh, and it kind of, you know, depending on what source you look at, but, you know, most people don't, don't appreciate just, just, you know, the, the extent to which French is spoken. And it, in fact, in, uh, in 2014, the guardian, uh, you know, newspaper in, uh, mm-hmm. in England, uh, reported on a study that showed that based upon the, uh, the continuing, uh, increase in population of sub-Saharan Africa, that uh, French could be the most widely spoken language in the world by 2050. And that's really because you have a slowdown in the population of China. Uh, obviously, Europeans are having fewer children, even in the United States. But but a woman in sub-Saharan Africa still has five, six, or even seven children. And mm-hmm. those families, whether it's the Central African Republic, where we don't have any, uh, any members, uh, or the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or the Republic of the Congo, or Cameroon, uh, or even Senegal, where I am now, and I'm in Cote d'Ivoire, all these places continue to have very high birth rates, and they're all French-speaking. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, that's interesting. It's also unfortunate. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't want to be interjecting my, my, my things here, too, but just my experience with Africa. When we started working in Malawi in uh, 1996, the population of the country was 9 million. And last year, it was 
pushing 20 million. I mean, that's just in the period of time that I worked there, 20, 25 years. Uh, it, it's, right. And it's not stopping. And the country is poorer as a result. More forests have been cut down for charcoal and for fuel. And uh, it's just a very sad state of affairs. Maybe you can comment about where, what the prognosis for French Africa is. Well, right. And actually, that, that brought to mind um, the country of Benin, where we do have, we do have members. Uh, Benin makes the, uh, the list for the, top in, for the top 10 most illiterate countries in the world. Uh, and yet, by the same token, they uh, growing very quickly. Uh, so if you're a woman in Benin, uh, you have likely only a 25% chance of being able to read. And a woman who is literate has fewer children than an illiterate woman. Uh, an illiterate woman also has a lower life expectancy uh, because of the number of children that she has and because of the conditions that she's uh, subjected to. And, and also there's a certain independence that comes from uh, being able to read. There's a certain way that you look at the world uh, as, and we don't, in the United States and in, and in the developed world, we don't often think about reading as a as a way that that we interact with the world uh, but it, it changes the way we we think about ourselves the way we interact with others so in benin we have a congregation in the um, commercial capital of uh, Cotonou, which is just uh, right near the uh, border with nigeria and uh, one of the projects we're doing there to sort of help in that way is uh, setting up a uh, a school where we can teach English uh, on a paid basis mm -hmm. and teach French um, to illiterate women on an unpaid basis. And uh, LifeNets Australia has uh, stepped up and uh, they said that they're willing to support the school. Uh, there's different uh, other donors that have, have uh, uh, said they're, they're willing to step on the, up on that. And that, that's, um, that, is, that is a way that you can combat poverty because if you can if a woman is going to have four children versus seven, you can imagine the difference uh, in terms of how much money is spent. Um, and part of the reason that there's an illiteracy problem is these countries may have free education to age 12 or 14, but often the system by which you deliver that education is corrupted. So, for example, uh, the books that you have to buy for school is a sole supplier from somebody in the government. And you can't reuse books. You know, in the United States, you might buy a book and then you could reuse it or you could go to some form and buy a used book. Well, that's not allowed. And the uniforms that the kids have mm -hmm. to wear to school, that's a single supplier as well. And so obviously the prices are controlled. And so what happens is if you have seven children or even if you have five children, you can't afford books and uniforms for every child to go to school. So you have to make a choice. And as you would expect, what happens is the, the little boys get the opportunity to go to school and the little girls don't because the boys can earn potentially more income of the family than the girls. Uh, the girls end up getting married off and, and, you know, going into another family. And so you, you get this cycle of poverty that you, that you have to combat. Uh, and so, uh, also Benin is the home of voodoo. Uh, so, you know, that's that's kind of where it all started. We think about Haiti often with voodoo, but that just was brought across from from Africa. And so mm -hmm. you've got a almost a half of the country, which is, uh, you know, worshiping ancestors and, you know, people, you know, dressed up in, in uh, different costumes and, you know, summoning the spirits of uh, ancestors and others. So it's, um, you know, it's a very challenging place for our members uh, to live.
Well, one question I had is uh, they are French-speaking Africa. It's called French Africa. But does pretty much everybody know French, or is that just the official language and people basically speak Swahili or local dialects? Uh, what's oh, it like? yeah, yeah. Well, the, I think the, uh, the term that's most often used is Francophone Africa. Uh, obviously, the, uh, the history of colonialism, whether you're talking about the British Empire or the French Empire, uh, there's a lot of sensitivities to that. Uh, even today, um, I want to say it's 10 or 11 countries are part of uh, a, a common currency block uh, called the, 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 the Central African Franc or the West African Franc. And the reserves for that currency are held in Paris. So there's a very tight connection between uh, these uh, former French colonies and and France, and in you know in, in that way. Uh, so you've got this block of countries, um, and you know they all use the you know this 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 common currency. So you ask whether people in in, in Francophone Africa all know French, or do they default to a, to a local dialect? And, right. Uh, it depends on the country. Uh, here, where I am right now in Cote d'Ivoire, there are over 70 languages spoken, and it's not that big of a country. You can imagine 70 different languages. Um, and so French is a, is a language that unifies the country. So mm -hmm. if, you, if you live in the south of Cote d'Ivoire and you want to travel to the north, they're not going to speak your language. Mm -hmm. So you speak French. So you can move around and, and French is the language of commerce. It's the, you know, your phones are in French, all the signs are in French, the roadside. So here in Ivory Coast, it's a little bit like India, where you have a lot of different languages, but really India is unified by English mm -hmm. um, and probably even more so even than India. Um, so that's the case in Ivory Coast. Uh, in certain other countries like Togo, Togo was a German uh, colony, oh, uh, uh, which Germany, yeah, it was a German, a Cameroon too. They were both German colonies, which the Germans lost after the first world war. Mm. So everybody switched from German to French after the first world war. And, uh, and they continued to speak French up to this, to this day, but they, they had their local dialect. So if you go to church in here in Ivory coast, we, we all speak French and tomorrow I'm going to church and we'll all, you know, we'll be preaching in French. If you go to Togo, I speak French and then I'm translated into the local language of Awe, mm -hmm. uh, which is also the language of Ghana. So uh, each country is a little bit different, but generally there is a little bit of interaction between a, a local tribal dialect and French. I know that's what... Uh... The situation in Zambia is they have 49 languages. They have seven major languages, and each one has about seven dialects, I am told. And so when the British came there, they said, look, we've got to have order here. <laughs> we'll make English That's right. the enforced official language. And still is today where I speak whenever I go there, you know, in the English language. It may be translated to some. Uh, they, they usually have a translator that speaks uh, one of the local languages, a, a version of um, one of the languages that's also spoken in Malawi. But even I asked people in the church there that when you gather together, and even husband and wife, what do you speak to one another? And they said English, <laughs> because that's <laughs> they they may not right. know they they may not know each other's language. That's right, and that, and that's that's a very good analogy to what I see here in West Africa. Uh, I, I'd mentioned uh, in the case of Cameroon, 
Cameroon is a bilingual country like Canada, but uh, but Canada is primarily English speaking with a section that's French, whereas Cameroon is primarily French speaking with a section that's English. But unfortunately, in the case of Cameroon, uh, the the that has led to a uh, a civil war. So there there is what I what many call a low level civil war going on between the English speaking part of Cameroon that wants to succeed mm-hmm. or secede, excuse mm-hmm. me, and um, and and become its own country. And the Francophone part of Cameroon that wants it to maintain the integrity of the country. So this language issue can even lead to open conflict. Uh, and and the, the situation in Cameroon, I just I guess I'll just mention something talking about Cameroon. Uh, the president of Cameroon, I, as I believe under most lists, is the longest serving president of any country in the world. He was elected uh, in 1982. And he's been successively elected, you know, for seven terms of whatever length since then. He's he's almost 90 years old Mm -hmm. and uh, the country is just descending into, you know, a a very difficult state there with the the civil war, uh, essentially a a dictatorship, uh, corruption, lack of infrastructure. Uh, And so, you know, again, you know, the language plays a role and we don't know how Cameron uh, will turn out. Uh, they they may end up with when the president dies, the English part may break off from the French speaking part. Uh, Tim, I would like to go to two different other areas here. They are special interest. One is I do not want to neglect your wife and her role. She, <laughs> she, is, she was born French and, uh, you know, in either Paris or Bordeaux, I'm not sure which, but she is from France and, and she does a lot of the work for the French Good News of the French Beyond Today magazine. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could tell us about Maurice's work and perhaps how you kind of became integrated into it. You mentioned that you give sermons in French. Obviously, you are proficient in the language to, to be able to do that. I'd like to hear more right. from you about that. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I, I definitely, um, you know, obviously I'm so thankful for my wife, Marise. We've been married coming up 34 years. She was actually born in uh, Charente, which is uh, known for its uh, uh, cognac and other things like that. It's uh, sort of between Paris and Bordeaux on the west side of the country. She grew up in Paris. Uh, her father worked for the French National Railway. She came to the United States when she was 21 years old. Uh, trying to figure out, you know, English speak, how to how to speak English and converse in, in this uh, uh, in the United States. And she is the editor of the um, French edition of the Beyond Today magazine, which in uh, French we call Pour l'Avenir, uh, which is translated directly as For the Future. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the closest equivalent to Beyond Today. Uh, and we've been blessed to uh, to be able to um, actually register that trademark uh, or that service mark under the Madrid protocol so we can use that uh, around the world. Uh, so she's responsible for, um, and we work obviously very closely, but she, you know, she has that primary responsibility uh, to ensure that the translators and the proofreaders and uh, working with printers and uh, ensuring the, the distribution of that magazine. She also uh, edits and reviews uh, booklets that we produce in the French language. We've mm-hmm. got more than 20 booklets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we continue to produce about uh, you know two booklets a year. So she's responsible to uh, make sure that that's done. You know, one, one thing about French, and if I can just say, is that the French uh, are very, um, 
proud of their language. Uh, French is the second most uh, taught language in the world after English. And if you pick up a book, in fact, I have uh, I have a book in my library. It was published in 1701 in Paris. I can pick up that book and I can read that book just as easily as I can read any French book today because the French language has changed very little because they are very careful about any new words that come in. There's a whole committee that agrees on what is a appropriate French word and what can be used. And of course, people make fun of that because, you know, we use language the way we want to use language. But uh, the French are are very proud and, and also very picky. And so uh, mistakes in the language, in writing, uh, are taken very, very seriously. So it takes, a, it takes a lot longer to actually produce a booklet in French because we just have to be so careful to make sure that we are um, grammatically correct and, and accurate in how we express things. Well, I know that we have, uh, we <clears throat> who are not knowledgeable in French and those who try to speak their uh, perhaps corrupt version of French are looked down upon snobbishly by the French. I mean, that's that's just kind of expected that the French, <laughs> that, that the French well, want you to be speak correctly to them. Well, you know, what's interesting is that that is that has certainly been the case. But, you know, now, especially if you go to France, the French uh, beginning in school start start learning English in first grade. So it, it, English is much more widely spoken, but there is a joke within French, uh, within the French speaking community of who speaks the, the best French and the Moroccans say they speak the best French or the, you know, the Cameroonians or the Canadians uh, or, you know, uh, whatever country you're going to say around the world. And, and you begin to pick out those, those accents. Certainly. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what other areas are there uh, in the French area that are significant? Like for example, in Canada, Montreal, that is a French-speaking church, or is it French and English? Uh, what's it like? Montreal is so interesting, and I just, uh, especially for, for your North American listeners, if you have a chance to get to Montreal, I think you'll really enjoy it. It has sort of the feel of, of, uh, of uh, the United States, and yet signs are in French, and it has a, sort of a connection to France and to Europe uh, that gives it a, a really unique flavor. We have a congregation in Montreal, which is pastored by Bruno Leclerc and his wife Chantal, and uh, they have uh, they go back and forth. So they'll have a, um, a Sabbath in French and a Sabbath in English. Uh, it's a completely bilingual uh, church, uh, and and I think a, a very interesting and, and dynamic uh, congregation there. Uh, we also he also gets over to the Maritimes, uh, which is also French speaking. If you go very much to the uh, to the east uh, there uh, in Canada, uh, you get into New Brunswick and places like that where uh, we have French-speaking uh, congregations as well. If I could just jump back to Africa, what was that one country that had this huge cathedral that uh, you had a number of people? Oh, is that is that the same? Is that where you are now? That's where I am now. That's right. So the um, uh, there is. And again, I may not say it's either the largest or it's the second largest uh, Catholic cathedral in the world. And basically, it's either the Vatican or this one. And it was uh, it's in the capital of Ivory Coast uh, called uh, Yomasukro, uh, which is about two hours north of where I am right now. It uh, it can uh, hold um, 200,000 people. Oh, uh, and then obviously not inside the cathedral itself, but within the compound. And it, uh, it was constructed uh, by the former president, the first president of Cote d'Ivoire, who, was, as you can imagine, was a devout Catholic. 
and uh, he wanted to construct this this uh, this church in his hometown. And it is uh, it is a, a truly magnificent structure in terms of its size and scope. But uh, and and I've taken people there before, and and uh, you can look you can uh, you can look this up. But it is it's it's hard to visit it and to see the poverty which exists all around, and then the really the opulence mm-hmm. <laughs> and the and the amount of money that it would take to construct a cathedral that uh could hold so many people and would be as lavish as it is and so it, it is certainly a, a subject of controversy uh within the country especially if you're muslim uh and and i should mention here in ivory coast uh they suffered uh, a civil war which uh began uh, originally in 2002 kind of died down and then and then came up again in 2010 to 2012 uh, really over uh, the issues associated with religion, Muslim, Christian, uh, who was going to be the president, what what, uh, what party was going to control. And it really did affect our, our brethren. And spending on cathedrals of that size plays into that, um, you know, that, that feeling of abuse of why did this country spend so much on a Catholic cathedral when half the country is Muslim, mm-hmm. uh, these types of things. So it's a uh, it really is a landmark uh, in in the world, and most people are not aware of it. One other question here, uh, since you are in that part of Africa, I saw, and you did tell me before you went there, that you had a conference, a leadership conference, uh, where you are now. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about that? That's right. We uh, we just completed just yesterday uh, a five-country pan-West African leadership conference, a four-day conference, uh, Nigeria, Togo, Benin, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. We had uh, more than 50 uh, leaders there in this conference uh, for four days. We were pleased to have Ray and Rhonda Clore. Uh, you might know that uh, Ray Clore worked uh, in the State Department. Yes. The station in places like Haiti and Cameroon. And so we had uh, a good friend of mine uh, uh, from, from France, Jonathan Reed, who came down to help me uh, with some things here. And uh, Bernard Solozano from Guatemala, uh, Leticia, um, uh, Demarest who oh, yeah. uh, provided translation, mm-hmm. and uh, so we uh, we had a I think an excellent conference, and we really hope that we can continue to do those kinds of conferences. You know, there those conferences are are made possible by uh, the budget that we receive from the United Church of God uh, for travel and and for training, but also through the generous donations of people really around the world who uh, look at the types of things that are going on here and they they want to be a part of them because. You know, being able to pay for visitors to come or pay for people to travel from all over the region. Uh, it's 17 hours by bus from where I am now to where the conference was held yesterday. Uh, that's that's how all our brethren, how, how our leaders from Cote d'Ivoire got there. They had uh-huh. to take a bus. Uh-huh. And you can imagine it, when you take a bus like that, it only stops on the side of the road and people basically... There's no toilets. They mm-hmm. just go on the side of the road, mm-hmm. and it does not stop for food. It just stops at control points, and people swarm the bus with uh, selling food and drinks, and they reach out the window and grab food and grab drink, and then they just eat, sit inside the bus. So it's a, it's it's very it's difficult for our brethren to travel in these regions. Uh, it's it's routine to you know you you stop and they'll say what can you do for me, and you you pay a bribe to get through, and then you stop two hours later and pay another one. Uh, so it's, it's difficult and expensive to travel because you have to pay for those things. And we're, 
we're thankful for the people who provide the extra funds to do that, you know, to have these kinds of conferences. Well, I might just say, too, is that uh, people have been very generous uh, using LifeNets as a portal to help out areas in the world, including uh, your areas, uh, through projects that, that have, we've been able to fund. Uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the new borehole in Cote d'Ivoire uh, that uh, has just... Uh, gushed you know with uh, water that's and, right and we we are we are so thankful we uh, we have a congregation in the in the far northwest of the country this is a little south of mali and of course mali is quite unstable uh this is uh you know burkina faso which also recently just had a coup uh, niger just had a coup gabon just had a coup so we're you know we've got kind of a lot of instability around so extreme northwest of the country village of um you know, three, 4,000 people, there were only three water sources in the village. And uh, women, you know, they take their, you might say, jerry cans or other kinds of uh, containers um, to uh, these three water sources, but two of them uh, quit functioning. And so uh, with only one water source left, uh, water was, you ran out of water by 10 a.m. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, they'd have to walk several miles to another village. LifeNet's uh, very generously provided the funds and it it's not an easy area to drill. Uh, we actually did hit water, but at 162 meters, which I think is more than 500 feet. It's, it's 532, uh, 532 feet. That's one of our deepest wells that LifeNest has been participating in. It's it, And it was remarkable to see the drilling. I, I was looking at some of the videos of when you're going that deep. So, yes, so now there's a, a second reliable water source, and I'll, I'm gonna, I will be there on Sunday. I'm going to inspect some of the work. We're going to look to see uh, how we might be able to expand some more access points by putting some more pipes in. It shouldn't be too costly to do that so that, uh, you know, people can have more access to that. And, the, uh, the, you know, we have uh, obviously the village chiefs there. There's uh, there's four of them. And whenever I go there, I meet with them. And, um, you know, they're, they're very thankful that, uh, you know, water can be available and people don't have to uh, walk so far in that way. So, you know, that it's it, an extra you see you you've heard these stories, uh, you know, and you pu- publish them on your website of other areas, but water is just so fundamental to how we live and just being able to get access to water, uh, you know, there is, has made such a difference. Well, that was really quite a story. And also the ac- you talk about access uh, to the water. You've actually had to build a road, haven't you? That's right. Uh, you know, there to, to, we, in this case, to be able to get to a part of the village that that was the farthest from the water source. We wanted to put it there, and it also was the benefit that it was on the church property, so we can have some degree of, of sort of oversight. Uh, because, as you know, it's not just about drilling these things; you also have to maintain them over time. Uh, make sure that you know the the equipment is maintained and serviced, and uh, the water is tested, and and so forth. And so this gives us some ability. And it also was in a location of the village where it was really the farthest from the source, so. Uh, being able to widen that road a little bit, and LifeNet again provided funds so that we could widen that road so that people could more easily get to the source. Well, LifeNet does very well when we talk about water, children, or education, <laughs> and we want to thank all of our LifeNet supporters who have been so helpful because we have responsible people that that we work through, uh, the senior pastors such as Tim Pebworth and and uh, others in uh, other countries in West Africa. We really do appreciate their stewardship of the funds to make them something which helps the community at large. 
Yeah, and I, 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 I just definitely want to second that. Uh, it has made such a difference because here, so often it's just about a little bit of capital, you know, a little bit of opportunity. People want to work. People really want to be able to to do something, but there's so, you know, so little opportunity. And so I, I think of a story of a young man in uh, in Benin, a very intelligent young man, uh, and he had. Um, came into the church when he was maybe a teenager with his his uh, grandma or his parents and he you know just could not continue his education and thanks to LifeNets uh, he was able to obtain a scholarship and uh, he was able to get a master's in physics if you can imagine and mm -hmm. now he he has a, he's a he, he teaches at the high school and college level in Benin he teaches physics and you know with that job now he has a wife and he has two children and he has a small apartment and none of that would be possible without uh, education. And, you know, that was provided through scholarships from LifeNets. Well, to us, that gives us a great deal of satisfaction to do that. We have spoken about so many things, and there's still other things I'd like to speak about. And I know, Tim, we're going to have to have a sequel to this. <laughs> so many things around the world to talk about. Yeah, it's it's great. And I, I really appreciate just, you know, having the chance to share some of these things because, each of us, we, you know, we might be in the United States or we might be in Canada. We might be in a certain place in the world. And yet, if we're in an English speaking environment, we, we so we often don't hear about the things going on in French speaking countries. So I'm, I'm really appreciative of the chance that you've given me to share some of these things. I, I might, uh, I have appreciated the work that Tim has done to promote the gospel message in, in Europe. Uh, they have certain techniques that may differ from American techniques. And he showed me some videos of young adults groups and young adults discussions that were very, very impressive to me. And uh, I would like to know more about them. I'd like, I, I enjoyed, I really appreciate working with, with uh, young adults. And uh, we want to find ways in which we can talk their language, we can communicate through, through their means, through their uh, generation. And uh, Tim has done a very, very good job at this. Well, and I'll just throw in one thing I'll mention. You know, France is a, is a, it's a challenging place to talk about faith. Uh, there was uh, actually an article in The Atlantic uh, in 2021 uh, that was titled, Why is France so afraid of God? And I think it's such an interesting title because I see that all the time. There is, there is a, um, France has taken a, a, a unique path in Europe in terms of, of its desire to be secular. And it's a, it's a function of its large Muslim population. It's a function of its historically Catholic roots. Uh, but uh, being able to talk about faith, talk about God is highly challenging. And I'll give you an example. Uh, last year at the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, we were at a, a very nice uh, a hotel there in the, in the south of France. And we put up a, a sign uh, that said, uh, Bienvenue en France, welcome to France, United Church of God. And uh, so, you know, our visitors would walk in the lobby. They know where they were in the right place, a very you know, simple thing. Uh, after two days, uh, we were asked to take down that sign because it was a display of religion in a public place. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and that's not possible. Uh, religious symbols in schools like crosses or headscarves are banned. Uh, homeschooling is banned except for cases of medical reasons. Hmm. Um, mandatory public school begins at three years old in France. Uh, there's there's uh, a, a big push 
to create uh, uh, this uh, laicite, it's called in French, or secularism, um, and to really remove religion from public discourse. Um, and so it's, uh, it, it really does create challenges for us to, to spread this message. And yet the message goes out and we still see uh, people calling us and, and we see, frankly, a lot of momentum going on in France. I think, I think people are looking for something. There's, they, they, something's been taken away in terms of, of what, you know, sort of God in their lives. And there's, there's a sort of like, what is that? And, and they reach out to us and uh, we see the gospel going out even under these circumstances. There's a hunger there that needs to be fed, and we have the food. And I feel like if we have the right combination that we can connect it to. I mean, always throughout history, uh, there has been the voice of God through various people that has prevailed, and it's survived countries, it's survived governments, it's survived ideologies. It's uh, been there from day one. And I thank you so much for doing this, and you're continually in our prayers. Thank you so much for the time. Okay. Okay. All right. Take care. Okay. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to us today on The Cubic Report. We welcome you to share this podcast and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible, and many other platforms. You can easily find us at any browser address box by typing in the words The Cubic Report, and there we are. Remember, Cubic is spelled K-U-B-I-K. So we'd love to hear from you. Write to us at vcubic at gmail.com. That's V-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.